I've asked you to open your Bibles to uh, the 74th Psalm. We're going to read the first eight verses, then we will begin the study after that. I'm, I'm going to be reading, and please follow along as I read, I'm reading out of the New King James Version of God's Word. Psalm 74, a contemplation of Asaph. Oh God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees. And now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them altogether. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. And Father, as we look at this 74th Psalm, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, pour your Holy Spirit out upon us, who is our teacher, the one who is able to open up our hearts to give us understanding of these things, Lord. We are, we are hopeless and helpless to understand apart from his direction and his giving us the understanding of your word. So, Lord, pour him out upon us. Might he bring honor and glory to your name. Might he glorify the name of Jesus. Might his name be lifted up. And, God, might we... As we hear these things, Lord, might we relate to them in our own lives and also understand where you want us to go, the, the, the actions that you want us to take, the thoughts that you want us to have in relation to these things. So God, teach us, we pray, and be glorified, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. You guys may be seated. The 74th Psalm is attributed to Asaph, as we see there in the inscription, a contemplation of Asaph. And I had shared with you last, uh, last week that uh, there are 12 uh, psalms that are uh, attributed to Asaph. Uh, this is uh, one of 11 consecutive psalms, beginning in Psalm 73, in which we see uh, his name uh, given as the, uh, the the writer. One of the things with that, though, we, we, we have to acknowledge is that as we um, look at this psalm and, and we see the content of it, especially as we see down in verses, well, well, well the second part of verse 3, three 3b through verse 8, um, we see those words which speak about the destruction that has taken place with or in, in the temple. 
the sanctuary of God and so forth. It's a reference to that destruction. And with all the times that there were, there, 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 there were wars and invasions on Jerusalem, the way that this is described, the only uh, um, time that it could be, it could be referring to would, would be when the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem under King Nebuchadnezzar, which would have taken place some 300 years or so later than Asaph, who was the worship leader for King David. So there are some who think that, well, well perhaps Asaph is writing prophetically. But a better way to, it, it seems to me that a better way to uh, think on this in terms of th this being attributed to Asaph, that it would be uh, someone from his house, from the house of Asaph, or one of the sons of Asaph who actually wrote this. And uh, some other, uh, other uh, psalms we see are written by the son, uh, attributed to the sons of Korah, for example. You know, and, and there's no doubt that Asaph had uh, sons and grandsons, and if it was 300 years later, it would be grand, 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 grandson, something like that, right? But it would have it been one of his household, one, one of his sons, one of his descendants who had written this around that time after Babylon, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had come into Jerusalem and destroyed the city and we're, we're going to read some things out of Second Kings that, that really line up with what we see described here in these particular passages. But we're going to go ahead and begin in the beginning with verse 1. Uh, we, we see the writer writing, O God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your, past, of your pasture? We, we, we see the, the psalm beginning with these questions. Two questions that are asked. Why have you cast us off forever? And why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? You know, the idea of the anger smoking, uh, it, it's just the, 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 the wrath. It seems like the wrath of God coming against God's own people. You know, that his anger is so hot that there's smoke. That's the idea, the, 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 the uh, anger smoking and so forth. But the, the first question, wh why have you cast us off forever? And obviously, and, and you can understand that coming from the perspective that if this is indeed, and we're going to approach it as if this is really the case, that this is written by one of the descendants of Asaph at that time when Babylon had come and destroyed the city and taken captives back to Babylon and left some people there in Jerusalem. But um, with the destruction of the city and the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the sanctuary of God, the destruction of the holy place and the most holy place, the very dwelling place of God, all these things, you see why somebody would ask questions like this. Because it would seem as if that's the case. But let me ask you a question in making this uh, somewhat personal. Why have you cast us off forever? Have you ever felt like that? 
Have you ever felt like God had just simply deserted you? Left you on your own? Left you with, well, just left you on your own. Cast us off forever, no, no longer bringing blessing to your life. You know, we, we can go through some tough times and allow our emotions. Our emotions can take us to that kind of a place. Now, we always have to get back into God's word. We have, we have to return to the place of understanding that God is the one who brings us blessing and even through these things, he's got something planned in terms of a work that he wants to do in us when we go through this kind of a difficult time. And we'll be talking about that in just a moment. But as I read this question, why have you cast us off forever? I couldn't help but think of Jesus while he was on the cross asking, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? which is a quote from Psalm 22, 1, a, a psalm that is a messianic psalm, and, a and of course, Jesus repeating that question, why have you forsaken me? As a man, a human being, of course, Jesus being all man, 100% man, and 100% God, right? But as a man, that was the emotion that he felt as he was hanging on that cross. Yet, yet he knew that this was the purpose for which he came. He knew that his father had a purpose for him to be hanged upon that cross. Our salvation, our redemption. He was purchasing us for himself, wasn't he? As he, he took all the sins of the world upon himself, as, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that, that Jesus was, was made to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, um, that's such an incredible verse, but that's exactly what, 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 what he did. So, so we see even Jesus, with the emotion the high emotions of that moment ask that question. Why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he hadn't. But he did not protect him from the cruelty of the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers. It, he, could, he felt as if he, was, had been, he had been forsaken, but he indeed had not. And that's one of the things with us in our lives, guys. We, as we go through difficult times, you know, we, we've got to remember the truth of God's word. We might feel that way, but our feelings can lie to us, can't they? Our emotions can lie to us. We can misinterpret some event, something that God does or something God doesn't do, misinterpret it to mean something that it doesn't mean at all. The fact of the matter is, He has promised you and He's promised me, those of us who received Him, those of us who belong to Him, He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He never will. And just because you don't feel His presence doesn't mean that His presence isn't with you. He has placed His Holy Spirit within you. 
He is with you, in you, in the person of His Holy Spirit. He will not leave. And so the reality is, even though I can feel alone in the midst of some trial, some pain, I'm not alone. It is impossible for me to be alone. If Christ is your Savior, He's placed His Spirit within you, it is impossible for you to be alone. Right? It's an impossibility. So what we're feeling and, the, and, the, and, 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 and what we are interpreting that to mean that we're just alone, that's just a lie. It, it's, it's the enemy twisting our circumstances to cause us to believe or causing us in our circumstances to believe something that really isn't true. But we cannot, we cannot fee, uh, be ever alone. I, I want you guys always to remember that. You cannot. It's impossible for you to be alone. Because God is always with you. God said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You guys believe that? Well, it's so important to believe it. Because sometimes we can feel differently. But that doesn't mean that's true. We just feel it. The emotion is there. Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? As if God is somehow punishing us, or uh, angry toward us. Now, truth of the matter is, in this situation, God was uh, uh, disciplining his people. He was disciplining, disciplining, chastising the nation of Israel for their faithlessness toward him. But God had a plan of restoration as well. We'll get to that in just a few moments. In verse 2, we, we see the words, Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Asaph here, the, the, this, the descendant of Asaph, is just calling out upon God to remember. Remember us. Remember your people. Remember us, Lord. Don't forget us. Now, now, God never will forget us, but again, we can kind of think like he does forget us. But, you know, this idea of remember, it's, it is asking God to keep his promises toward us. It's asking God to act on his word and the promises that he's made, basically. You know, don't forget God. Don't, don't, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who we are. We're your people. You know, we, we are your, your own special treasure. That's, that's what your word tells us. So treat me that way. And that doesn't mean that we're going to always be treated like a little prince or princess. Right? But we always are his own special treasure. His own special, his, his treasure, his people. You know, we, th th that's, that's who we are. And, and so it's not wrong to say that. But he's not, he hasn't forgotten but the prayer is, when saying remember, is treat us, act upon the reality of our relationship. And, you know, um, those of you who are parents, um, there are times that you did act appropriately in your relationship with your own children, 
that they don't like. And they feel like they're being treated unfairly or unreasonably. That can happen. But we're just, we're just wanting to honor God in, 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 in uh, raising our children and all. And sometimes discipline and chastisement needs to take place. And so that, that's the idea that we have here. And, and, and we see him referring to the reality of God having purchased his people. Now, we, he, he is referring back to when God, basic, when God re- redeemed his people out of Israel. That, that, that's really what he's referring to. In Exodus chapter 15, we, we see uh, in, in the Song of Moses in that chapter, in the 16th verse of that chapter, it says, Fear and dread will fall on them, the, the enemies of God, by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. And so the purchase or the redemption of God's people. And, and, and we see here uh, in verse 3, lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. Now, the, beginning to refer to the things that have taken place. Lift up your feet, take action. That's the, that's the idea. They set up their banners for signs. They, that, that, the idea there is that we, we, don't, we don't see the signs. In fact, later on he mentions that, that in verse 9, we, we do not see our signs. There's no reference to this place belonging to God anymore, belonging to Israel anymore. The signs indicate, and this is the idea of, of uh, the Babylonians would have come in and putting their... Their banners, their flags all over the place because now the property was theirs. It was their possession now. You know, like that very, very famous uh, uh, image, whether it's a a picture or a sculpture of the uh, U.S. Marines on Iwo Jima putting that flag up. Four soldiers, I believe it is, that's doing that and getting the flag up and, you know, because victory had been won. You know, and this is a practice that's been, that's been done for thousands and thousands of years. When an army has victory, he sets up his banners, sets up his flags. Back in 1969, when we went to the moon, what kind of a flag was, pl- was planted into the moon? An American flag, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, that's, it just shows, it, it is a signal of the sovereignty of the people or the nation that has actually discovered it or had victory there in that place now belongs to them. So it's speaking about ownership and it's speaking about prominence is what that's speaking of. Um, and, and we see the idea too that the destruction the destruction that has taken place the enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Here in verse 3, and then we look down in verse uh, uh, 5 and 6, they, 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 seem, they seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees, and now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. In 2 Kings chapter 25, we see the description here of what 
Nebuchadnezzar's army did in Jerusalem in the temple. Verses 13 to 17 in 2 Kings 25. The bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord and the carts and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried their bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the spoons, and all the bronze utensils with which the priests ministered. The fire pans and the basins, the things of, the sol the things of solid gold and solid silver, the captain of the guard took away. The two pillars, one sea and the carts, which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these articles was beyond measure. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits, and the capital on it was of bronze. The height of, one of the capital was three cubits, and the network and the pomegranates all around the capital were all of, the, all of bronze. The second pillar was the same with a network. So just a description of all the bronze that was there, valuable uh, um, a commodity uh, for them, and they just smashed it all up so they could so that they could haul it away. And we see the reality of what we see here. Uh, the, the psalmist writing here in these verses uh, taking place there in Second Kings chapter twenty-five. It's verse seven, the setting of fire. You, they have set fire to the, your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. And then going on, verse 8, they said in their hearts, let us destroy them altogether. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. Also in 2 Kings 25, verse 9, he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And so the destruction, not only of the temple, not only of the temple building and the precinct, temple precincts, but also the houses of the important people of Jerusalem were all burned as well, just burned to the ground. Which is interesting that that would take place, but the, the Lord had told them that this was going to be happening uh, because the prophet Jeremiah, in chapter 7, verse 14, spoke this from the Lord. The Lord is speaking through Jeremiah and says, Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name, the temple, right? In which you trust to this place which I, have, which I gave to you and your fathers as I have done to Shiloh. In Shiloh, God had destroyed it because of the attitude of the people toward what was there and their attitude toward God himself. They, they had been committing idolatry and, and worshiping other gods. You know, there was, a, as we see there in Jeremiah, the issue is, the issue is that they trusted in the temple. They trusted in the temple. God says, therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust. He's not talking about his name. He's talking about the house that's called by his name, the temple itself. You remember in the Gospels, we see this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
But quoting from Mark 13, verses 1 and 2, Mark writes, Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here? Isn't this the greatest place you've ever been? These, these stones, these buildings, and how ornate they are, and how beautiful. I mean, this is absolutely incredible. I'm paraphrasing there. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, what Jesus is referring to what was going to be taking place in 70 A.D., when Titus of Rome would come into Jerusalem and destroy it. And so fully that, as Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. Uh, there, there was gold within the stones, between the stones, and, and they, they wanted to get all that gold, and so they pushed down every stone and got all the gold off, and everything, everything that was there, they just took it. And so the issue being even then with, with what Jesus it said in his response to this disciple, it's like, you know, you, you guys are too engrossed with this building. You are too into what this building, the way this building looks and the way that it's built. And, you know, it's going to be destroyed. Then what are you going to have? See, if they trust in the building and the building is destroyed, then they've got nothing to trust in, Right? The building was supposed to be a place where they would gather to worship their God. It's interesting, at the end of the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, we see John saying this. He's, he's got this vision of what's going on. Uh, and there in chapter 21 and 22, the, uh, is a new heaven and a new earth already have been created. Okay? And he says there, but I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. It's interesting that when the Lord commanded Moses to make the tabernacle and then everything that's in the tabernacle, he gave him basically a blueprint of not the temple in heaven, but the tabernacle in heaven, right? The tabernacle. He gave him the blueprint of it and everything that was in it. And that's exactly what Moses was to do, to, uh, to, to use to, to make everything according to that blueprint. But it wasn't a temple, it was a tabernacle. There is no temple in heaven. There's going to be no temple in, in, in uh, the new heavens uh, in, in the new Jerusalem. There's not going to be anything like that. God and his son, the lamb, are the temple. It just makes me wonder about even the idea of the existence of the temple in Jerusalem to begin with. You know, remember that David wanted to build it. God wouldn't allow him to. And David had his son Solomon build it and everything. And you know, um, it's just something to think about. And, and part of the thing is that we as human beings, we can get very much impressed by things like that. And things that should 
cause us to look to God and thank him often will cause us to look to this thing that he gave to us and we worship that. That thing becomes too important. You know, and, and we've got to be careful about that. That thing can be a person or a relationship that becomes too important. Not that relationships are not important. I'm not saying that. But we can make a relationship more important to us than God himself is to us, right? There's a word for that, idolatry. It's idolatry. Expecting something that God has given to us, something that he's created for us, to do for us only what God himself can do. Now, God gives us things to bless us. He gives us relationships to bless us with. You know, I, I think about marriage, my marriage. I've been married to, to, to Jeanette now for over 51 years. We've had a blessed 50-plus years together. It's been a blessing. I'm so thankful for it. And God gave it to us in order for that blessing to take place. You know, but it does not replace God. It cannot do for me or for my wife what, what he himself can do. He gave us that to accomplish some things that he wants to, but uh, we, we have to be very, very careful about what it is that we worship. And that, that's kind of the point that we see here uh, with the destruction of the temple. Verses um, 9 to 11 we do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet, nor, there, nor is there any among us who knows how long. Oh God, how long will the adver adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. He's crying out for God to do something, to act to destroy his enemies who had come in to destroy the city of Jerusalem, to destroy the, the, the temple and all that it is, all that it represents and so forth. But it can't destroy what it represents. It's just destroyed physically. But the psalmist seeks that the Lord would destroy them. He says, uh, uh, There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long in, in Lamentations 2.9, Lamentations, of course, written by the prophet Jeremiah. And in Lamentations, he's lamenting what he sees taking place in Jerusalem with this particular event. And he's lamenting the response of the people to it. And in chapter 9, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 9, he wrote, her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. A few verses later, in verse 14 of that same second chapter, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and, del and delusions. And then in verse 11, 
you know, the, the question, why do you withdraw your hand, even, even your right hand, speaking about his power uh, in his right hand, take it out of your bosom and destroy them. You know, stop resting and act. You know, he's, he sounds kind of demanding, doesn't he? But this is his prayer. I mean, he's asking God to act on behalf of his people and on behalf uh, against this enemy that had destroyed the temple. Another thing that we see here, as we look at Lamentations again, further on in this same second chapter, in the 17th verse, we see something interesting that he writes. The Lord has done what he purposed. Now, if we just kind of stop there, and if the psalmist here had understood what Jeremiah would write. Now, uh, um, perhaps he had already written it. I mean, it's a, a, at, at about the same time. Uh, it's about the same time. And maybe he's seen this, and, and even as he said, there's no prophet. I mean, Jeremiah is there in um, Jerusalem. The false prophets were... were were functioning out of uh, Babylon. And as you read Jeremiah, you, you can see how, how that all is working together. But Jeremiah basically says, the Lord has done what he purposed. And, and, and the psalmist here is not understanding that. He's not hearing from Jeremiah. And, and could it be that this psalmist is so broken over what's taken place that he's wanting to hear some good news that God is going to take revenge, that, that he is going to do something about what the Babylonians had done, and then he would feel better, but he's not hearing anything that's making him feel better. But the false prophets are saying things that will make the people feel better. They, of course, are in, in Babylon. But the, the rest of that verse, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has fulfilled his word, which he commanded in days of old. He has thrown down and has not pitied, and he has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the horn of your adversaries. And we're reminded that the reason that this took place was because the people of Judah had sinned against the Lord in such a way that they were... Uh, they were committing spiritual harlotry. They, they, they were idolatrous. They were worshiping other gods. And God would send them prophet after prophet and after prophet, and they wouldn't listen. And God warned them of what would take place, and they didn't listen. And finally, they experienced what God said would take place, and they can't understand how this could happen. How could the God of gods and his temple, be, I mean, how could the, yeah, the God of all gods d allow his temple to be destroyed like this? But they weren't treating him like he was the God of all gods. They were worshiping other gods. Let's be reminded, though, as we read these words out of Lamentations, 
And the reminder that Jeremiah gives that the Lord is simply doing what he purposed to do, what, he's, what he had said he would do, right? Let's be reminded that Jeremiah also wrote in Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 10, verses 10 through 14, these words. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, now let's pause there for a moment, the false prophets were saying, you know guys, hang tight, couple years, we'll be back home. That's basically what they were telling them. So they were taking comfort in that. Jeremiah would say, no, that's not what the Lord's saying. Is that they didn't want to hear what Jeremiah said. They wanted to hear what the false prophet said because they wanted to hear something that, as I said, felt good. Something they want to hear. It's nice to hear what you want to hear, right? But God wants us to hear what we need to hear. He wants us to hear truth. And sometimes the truth is just hard to hear. It's just hard to hear sometimes. Well, Jeremiah writes, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. It's not just going to be a couple years. It's going to be 70 years. Then verse 11, my wife's very favorite verse, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with, with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. So he promises he's going to bring them back, but it's going to be 70 years. It's going to be 70 years. Seventy years because in a period of 490 years, the people did not honor the law of the Sabbath nor the law of uh, the year of uh, Jubilee. God had commanded that the, that the land have rest every seven years. And for 490 years, they did not give it rest. They did not, they did not obey him because, well, I, I would assume that was because, well, if we keep, you know, um, using the land, we're just going to be more prosperous. They, they didn't obey God. And so they had to be off of the land for a period of time to allow the land to rest. But this also is, of course, a very stern disciplinary action by God toward his people. But he's going to bring them back. He's not holding out on the promise that he had made. But they were not going to see that promise just yet, but he would bring them back 
as they search for him with their whole hearts. He, he knows their thoughts that he thinks toward them. And you know, that is such an important thing for us. You know, I, I, I kind of couple that thought there in, in Jeremiah 29, 11, that he knows the thoughts that he has toward me um, with Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, in which he says, the Lord says that, you know, my thoughts and my ways are higher than your thoughts and your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so my thoughts and my ways are above yours. Here in Jeremiah 29, you know, through Jeremiah, the Lord is telling the people, listen, guys, I know what I'm doing. You don't really know what I'm doing, but I know what I'm doing. And what I'm doing are thoughts that are consistent with not evil, but peace for you. And I want to give you a future and a hope. That's my intent towards you. You don't really know that. You don't see that. You don't understand. But I know the thoughts that I have. You know, and, and, and his thoughts are way above ours. You know, guys, they, they, they just are. And so because his thoughts are that much higher than mine as far as the heavens are above the earth, because his ways are that much higher than mine, why should I feel like I should understand everything that he's doing or everything that he's thinking? How can I? They're beyond me. And if I'm expecting to understand everything, then I'm asking for God to reduce himself to my level. Aren't I? Well, no, I want to understand his ways, but you can't. He's infinite and you're finite. You can't. We just have to accept it. And in accepting it, it means because he has told us. One thing he doesn't tell us often is what he's thinking about our future. He won't tell us that many times. Once in a while he may, but generally, no. But the point is, that I'm making is that something that he has shown us in his word is his character. He is good. He is loving. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is filled with loving kindness toward us. He is filled with all knowledge and all wisdom and all power. In his wisdom, he knows what to do. In his power, he's able to do it. And in his love, this thing that he wants to do toward us is something always that's good. I know the thoughts that I have toward you, thoughts not of evil but of peace, to give you a future and a hope. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way, it doesn't seem that way. We can't see it. As I've shared with you uh, in the past in terms of this thing that my honey's going through with this... Uh, neurological disease that she has you know I it's hard for me to see the good that's going to come out of this but God told me that all things work together for good for those who love him under the call according to his purpose do I love him does my honey love him yes are we the called according to his purpose yes not our purpose but his purpose so we trust him 
We just trust Him. As hard as it is, we just trust Him. So, He doesn't act the way that we want Him to act. He doesn't take vengeance on others around us when we want him to because he's got something better in mind. And I'll tell you what, guys, when in, in, in watching my precious wife and thinking that, I, I really do believe this, that you know, I, want, I want her healed. But whatever God does is going to be better than what I want. It's better somehow. I don't get it. But you know what? Honestly, I have no choice but to trust him. I have to. I have to. Well, because I believe what the Bible says about who he is. So I have to trust him. So I'm constantly just kind of pulling myself back. But God, you know, I mean, pulling myself back. Yeah, I mean, we, we want to argue with them, and we want to tell them why we think ours is a better way. And then it's like, oh, wait a minute. No, I can't say that. I mean, you're smarter than me. I mean, it's not like I know more than you. I mean, I can't. No, okay. I trust you. You know that kind of a thing? That's what we have to do. Okay, let's go on. Let, let's go ahead and finish the, these uh, 23 verses. Verse 12. Now, verses 12 to 17, we see... Uh, the, the psalmist giving reason in terms of God's history, his creative power, and his power displayed in past deliverances of Israel. So, so he's saying, listen, you're strong enough to do something. You're powerful enough to do something. You know, take your hand out of your bosom and do something, he's saying. You know, uh, destroy them. And he says, verse 12, for God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of the Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. You broke open the fountain and the flood. You dried up mighty rivers. The day is yours. The night also is yours. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have set the, all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Surely you can do something about this. I added that because that's kind of the intent that the writer has, right? We don't need to rehearse all the things that he's talking about. He's talking about creation. He's talking about the flood. He's talking about the deliverance, you know, through uh, the Red Sea or through the Jordan River, different things like that. That, that he's talking about, you know. And yes, God can do anything. And that's another thing that can get us, bring us to a place of confusion. You know, if you're good and you can do this, why don't you do it? Doesn't make sense, right? But again, his thoughts are higher than ours. Back off. Okay. We'll just wait and see what you're going to do. That's, that's where we go with that. Verse 18. Remember this. 
that the enemy has reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Oh, do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beast, reference to Israel, Judah in this case. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have respect to the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Oh, do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those who rise up against you increases continually. Now the psalmist is speaking of the way that God's enemies have reproached him or reviled him. Um, blaspheming his name. These, these foolish people, foolish nations blaspheming his name. Ezekiel writes in chapter 20, verse 14, he's uh, speaking for the Lord. The Lord says through him, but I acted for my name's sake that it should not be profaned, that his name should not be profaned before the Gentiles in whose sight I had brought them out. Referring back to the, 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 the people with Moses bringing them out of Egypt and through the wilderness. And he had acted for the sake of his own name, so that those who saw what God did for his people would not profane his name. Now that, 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 that should mean something to us. And we, we need to kind of, you know, interpret that in such a way that we apply it to our own lives. Now the things that God did for Israel, he's going to be doing different kinds of things for us, but, but in, in the sense of similarities and in the same way that he acted for the people of God in delivering them from Egypt which by the way is a type of sin a type of bondage when he delivers us from bondage when he delivers us from sin people around us see that happen and we give the Lord credit for it then he's going to be praised and glorified now, there were times when in the wilderness the people of Israel wanted to return to, to bondage. Weren't there? And there are times that we as people who have been delivered from bondage by God want to return to that. Drugs and alcohol, for example. It's easy to return there because of the world that we live in and because of the weakness of our own nature. We need the power of God. And he's given us his power. He's given us his Holy Spirit, which gives us power over sin. Romans 6 speaks, speaks a great deal about that. But the point being... You know, God 
wants his name to be glorified, not profaned. But when you or I return to bondage, as if somehow that's better than the abundant life he gives us in Jesus Christ, then that causes people to profane the name of God. By profaning, what it means is just to make it something that's common. Your God that you say delivered you isn't really all that great, is he? Apparently he didn't deliver you like you said he did. You know? That's what people will think. And we go back to something that gives us a some kind of a physical, temporary physical satisfaction. But as the Bible calls sin, it's a passing pleasure of sin. And we know that to be true. God help us. And I in no way want to... Um, lessen the reality of the power of sin. That the power of the temptation to sin, to return to that place. I mean, it's a powerful draw. But God has given us something, given us His Spirit, who is more powerful than that. And if we can come to a place where it is our heart's desire to bring honor and glory to the Lord, first and foremost, when I can get to a place where it's not about me anymore, it's about the name of Jesus. It's about His honor, about His glory. It's not about me. Then that gives us proper motivation to act in a way that's glorifying and honoring to him. And we can do so through the power of the Holy Spirit who's within us. And so this reproach or this reviling toward the Lord, we have something to do with that in the sense of our cooperation with his desire and his plan, his will for our lives in delivering us from these various types of bondage, you know, uh, alcohol or, you know, drugs. That's just one type. You know, I, I, I can be in bondage to being popular. And all that I do is want people to like me. And that controls the way that I act rather than being controlled by God himself, right? There's a lot of different ways that, that, that this can, that this can uh, turn out. And, and, and going on, verse 19, the, the, the writer um, gives this, uh, the word turtle dove, the, the, this is a very uh, a gentle, the most gentle of all birds and is, and is a pet, you know, uh, that can be a pet, you know, and toward God's heart toward the people and it is is like that, like the, the the pet owner toward a turtle dove. I think in our culture we would probably say more like a dog, 
you know. But um, he says, don't forget the life of your poor forever. Respect for the, have respect for the covenant. Said, Honor the covenant, the promises that you've made. That's what he's saying. But, and God is doing that. But one thing that we have, they have to remember is the reality. And we have to remember is that God has spoken about the reality of consequences of sin. That's real. That doesn't mean that's where, how it's all going to end. But there are consequences of sin, right? That's what the people of, of Israel were, were going through. You know, the oppressed, uh, don't let the oppressed uh, return ashamed. You know, uh, be with them, be on their side like you promised that you would. The poor and needy, let them praise your name. The same idea. Arise, verse 22, arise and plead your own cause. And we're going to close on this note, this idea of asking God to plead his own cause. You know, um, there are many causes for which we can live our lives in our world. And I think it's a good thing to ask us, you know, what, what's my cause? What is it that I live for? What is it that I want to see championed? What, what, what do I want to be a champion for? You know, I mean, we, there are people in the world who uh, want to be a, 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 a champion for, oh, I don't know, my mind's blank right now. I can't think of anything. <laughs> uh, I didn't write anything down. But, you know, just different causes. You know, um, the, uh, the homeless, for example. That can be, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to minister to the homeless. We're, we're, we're supposed to help those who are needy. We're supposed to. But some have made it their, their, their life's work just simply to help the, the, the homeless, right? Others have made it their life's work to do various other kinds uh, of things for people. There's nothing wrong with that. But what's, what is it that God has placed in your heart? You know, whatever our cause is, might it be a cause that God has given to us? You know, uh, God, plead your own cause. Sometimes the causes that we have are man-made derived from our own thinking, rather than coming from God himself and through his word. We just need to be careful about what it is that we give our lives over to. You know, um, if we find it in God's word, yeah. But make sure that God has placed that on your heart. Follow that. Do that. He, by his spirit, gives us a desire to do the things that that God wants us to do, to serve him in the way that God desires that for us to serve him. You know, wh whether it's, in, in, in my case, it's, it, it's as a pastor. You know, other people's case, it might be as a worship leader. It might be as a children's minister. It, it, it might be, be something re related to family. You know, um, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are, I'm sure, dozens and dozens and dozens of different things that could be placed there. But let us make sure that whatever cause we plead is a plead that is, is a cause that comes from God. And Father, I pray that you'll help us to do so, Lord. I, I, I just pray that you would have your way in us today. Lord, might we live our lives in such a way that you are honored and glorified. 
Lord, might we see the deliverances that you give to us as your hand upon our lives. And Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, to stay in that place that you've brought us. To stay in that place that you've brought us that we wouldn't, that we wouldn't, Lord, return to what you've delivered us from. Lord, as this psalm speaks about the, the sorrow over the destruction that's taken place as a result of the disobedience and the idolatry of your people. Lord, might we take stock of our own lives and consider, consider what's going on in our lives and perhaps what our cause might be. What is it that we've lived for? What decisions have we made? Why are we making those decisions? Is there something other than you on the throne of our hearts. And so, God, have your way with us. Be glorified, be honored, and we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together, guys. Chris is going to lead us in one last song and then dismiss us. Have a great rest of your evening, great rest of your week. We'll see you next time we're together.